Welcome to the Operation Crest Podcast. I'm Jacob Miracle. And I'm Evan Turner. And we are the co-hosts of today's episode. Operation Crest is an effort from the 957 Project to empower high school students like us to preserve memories of America's veterans and to share their stories of courage, resilience, service, and teamwork. Each of these interviews will be donated to the Library of Congress to preserve for future generations. And you can hear other episodes of this show wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to stick around at the end of this episode to hear us reflect on what we've learned during the following conversation. Learn more at www.the957project.org slash Operation Crest. And now, let's begin the show. Today, we're interviewing Jason McNutt. Jason serves with the Defense Contract Management Agency as a program integrator in Huntsville, Alabama, where he is currently supporting the Missile Defense Agency with the nation's Homeland Defense Mission. He has previously served in several capacities within DCMA at locations spanning across the country to include the Pentagon and Washington, D.C. Prior to his current career with DCMA, Jason also served in the U.S. Army, where he had the rank of Sergeant First Class within the Army's Aviation Branch as an AH-64 Apache Attack Helicopter Senior Maintainer. He is a combat veteran on the 101st Airborne Division with combat deployments to both Afghanistan and Iraq. His military awards, awards include the Bronze Star Medal and two Meritorious Service Medals. Mr. McNutt has over 25 years of combined military and government experiences in his professional career and has a Bachelor's of Science in Business from Bellevue University. Let's start off. Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood and what it was like where you grew up and went to school? Uh, sure. So, uh, so I was born and raised in a s- small town in the south part of Alabama down near the Gulf Coast in Mobile County. Uh, the city is called Sims. Um, small town uh, just outside uh, west of uh, the city of Mobile, uh, not far from the state line there. In the, it's in the bottom left corner of, of Alabama. Uh, grew up kind of uh, normal southern small town life. Uh, played sports growing up as a kid. Uh, played uh, baseball in my community growing up. Uh, when I was in high school, I played uh, on the basketball team for my local high school. Um, I guess, you know, I describe myself as an average kid growing up in the South, I guess, in a, in a kind of a, a rural, uh, rural or country area. Um, I'd say typical small town life. Um, uh, had great parents, um, a, a pretty good, uh, you know, healthy family environment growing up. Um, you know, as I got older, I probably went through a little bit of rebellious phase. Uh, you know, family and friends that knew me in my, in my teenage years when I was your guys' age, you know, pro- probably got in my fair and, and, you know, my fair share of trouble, I guess. Uh, nothing too serious, just a kind of mischievous as a kid, had some friends that I kind of ran around with. We, we got in uh, a fair amount of trouble every once in a while, but nothing, you know, n- nothing, nothing too bad. But uh, we definitely had our stories to tell as teenagers. But uh, I'd say, you know, just a normal, uh, n- normal childhood growing up, a uh, lot, lot of good memories uh, of my hometown. Um, but uh yeah I, 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 that's that's pretty much it thank you for throwing that with us uh were you interested in the military when you were younger or was it something that developed later on like in your life um 
actually, you know, in, in, in my childhood growing up till, you know, when I was about to graduate high school, I, I had no thoughts of joining the military, uh, never even occurred to me. Um, it was, it was, it was the summer between, um, uh, my sophomore year and my junior year, uh, when I was about to start my junior year of high school, uh, a really good close friend of mine, childhood friend that, that I grew up with that lived down the street. Um, I, I was at his house one day and, um, and we were just sitting in his bedroom, you know, playing some video games or whatever. And, uh, he just started having a conversation. Now th this particular friend, I described him as one of my really smart friends I had. He was, a uh, uh, you know, National Junior Honor Society type and, and, you know, had, had, had the, you know, the, the high GPA and all that, all that stuff that, that definitely wasn't my academic record, but, uh, but he was a really good friend of mine nonetheless. And, uh, we were sitting in his, in his bedroom, just hanging out one day. And he was like, Hey man, do you have any plans, uh, for when we graduate? And, uh, and I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, well, you know, we're done with school in like two, we only got two more years of school. Did, have you been thinking about that? And yeah, to me, I was like, I was like, my friend's name was DJ. And I said, DJ, I don't even know what I'm doing next week. <laughs> like, I don't even know what I'm doing tomorrow. I haven't even thought about what I'm going to do in two years. And he was like, well, I mean, you know, we're going to be adults and we got to do something. And he gave me this kind of little bit of a lecture, kind of like, you know, get your act together kind of thing. Not, not in a bad way, but he was just the good friend telling him, you know, hey, you probably need to start thinking about this stuff. And I probably took it the wrong way, as I recall it, if, if I'm recalling the situation correctly. And he said, um, he said, uh, I, well, I told him, I said, well, what are you going to do? And he was like, well, would you like me to tell you? And he kind of casually reached over to his nightstand or his side table by his bed and pulled out some army brochures. And he was like, I'm going to join the military. And I, and I just laughed it off. I was like, yo, whatever, dude, Let, let's go. You're up. I think we were playing like maybe NBA jams or something on the, on the, on the <laughs> Nintendo. And so, so and I, was like, I was like, come on, dude, pick the control up. Let's go. He's like, no, I'm serious. Do you want to, do you want to hear my plan? And I was like, you know, I probably tease him a little bit. And I was like, sure, humor me. And so he just goes into this, Hey, uh, I'm going to sign up for four years. I'll be 18 years old. I'm going to learn a skill. I'm going to do a little bit of traveling, maybe see the world. Um, it's only a four-year commitment. And then I'm going to get out and they're going to give me all the college money I need to go get my degree and do what I want with the rest of my life. And so I'll be 22. I'll still be young when I get out. And that's what I'm going to do. And he probably put a little more context in there when he told the story. But I, I sat there kind of like, Wow, I got I got nothing. <laughs> I, I don't I don't I don't know I don't know to say to that. And he was like, you know, he kept going on. It, it was it was a kind of a conversation at that point. And I was like, I mean, you're really going to join the military? I was still shocked that he was going to join. He you know wasn't the military type, right? He was kind of the, uh, he, he, you know, he, he was more of the intel, very intellectual type. And uh, so you know, we had this conversation, and and he said man, look, we both got similar backgrounds. You, you know, and I both know that our parents don't have some hidden college fund waiting for us when we graduate. We're, you know, we're going to, we're going to have to figure this out on our own. So, so what, so, you know, I don't want to be a burden on my parents, just like you don't want to be a burden on your parents when you're 18. You got to, what's your plan kind of thing. So I was like, I never really thought about it that way. And he was like, would you, you know, it turned into, you want me to put you in contact with my recruiter? <laughs> so so that, that's kind of how it, that's kind of how it happened. And then I went and talked to the recruiter and, and kind of, you know, it just worked itself out. You know, I was, uh, 
I was always interested in aircraft and aviation in general. I did have a little bit of fascination with aircraft, particularly um, helicopters with rotary wing aircraft. I mean, airplanes are cool. I, I, I don't dislike airplanes, but, you know, the fixed wing airplane type uh, of aircraft was less appealing than rotary wing. They just seemed more complicated, more cool. Um, I don't know. I just had I just I was drawn to helicopters. And so when I talked to the the recruiter, of course, the Army uses helicopters. Right. So uh, that's kind of how, how I landed. So I ended up choosing to be an air, uh, an Apache attack helicopter crew chief uh, maintainer, uh, you know, guns, missiles, rockets and stuff. You know, it's like that stuff's cool. So so that appealed to me the most. And uh, and that's kind of that's kind of how it ended up. It started with a conversation out of the blue and uh, one of my good childhood friends bedroom. And it turned into me making a career. Hmm. What were your family's reactions when you told them that you were joining the military? Uh, <laughs> so, so um, I think both of my parents were a little surprised. Obviously, you know, you, you know, I didn't grow up from, I didn't come from a military family. You know, nobody, nobody in my family really has any military history. My dad's age, he, he was of the age where. Um, he, he was almost old enough to be drafted to go to Vietnam, uh, but he kind of missed that that period because of the way his birthday fell. Um, <clears throat> although I did have a great uncle, my uh, my mother's grandmother had a brother uh, who was drafted on the tail at the tail end of World War II, and he went up to uh, Fort Dix, New Jersey, uh, for basic training, and then he was going to ship off across the Atlantic uh, to the European front. But the war ended. Uh, right as his training ended. So he basically went to New Jersey and got all this like training on the army's dime. And then they sent him back to Alabama because the war ended. So, so I didn't really, I didn't really come from a long line of veterans or a military family. The army for me was just, uh, you know, a way out. So when I, you know, when I told my, my parents that obviously they were shocked. Um, my mom, much more so than my dad. Uh, my mom did not really cope well with the army, as you can imagine. I mean, most mothers, obviously, you, you know, they don't want their babies to, to join the military. You know, that's not what they grew up in, and, and tell you they want you to do. They, they want you to get a good job and have a good career, but they, they, they certainly don't tell you that, that, oh, I want you to join the military and go to war, right? So my mom was really resistant to me joining the military. My dad, um, I don't know that he encouraged me he didn't encourage me to join the military but he came around to be pretty supportive i mean he would have private conversations with me along the lines of hey i just want to make sure you know what you're doing i want you to go into this like clear-eyed and 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 make i don't want you to get yourself into a situation you can't get out of this is a big commitment uh those types of things so he was just more like he wanted me to be sure this is what i wanted um my mom it took her a long time to accept the fact that i was going to join the army i don't uh i, I don't hold it against her but she she gave me a lot of grief about joining joining the military for a while but uh, eventually she came around you know especially after after i joined uh you know and she was uh you know she she came around but yeah it, it was it was it, i would say it's a, it was a shock to both of my parents but uh my mom really had a hard time dealing with me joining the military as any mother would all right you kind of answer this question already but did you have any close friends joining in the military or did you like make any uh, really close relationships within the military while you was like deployed i guess yeah so uh so so in my hometown i did have friends that joined other branches of the military i had another friend 
uh, a real ironic story. So, so as you read in my bio, I was I served with the 101st Airborne Division at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. So that's right up there above Nashville, not far from you guys on the Tennessee Kentucky state line. Um, so I, I was I was actually uh, it was my first or second year in the Army, and me and a buddy went over to it was like a KFC or Taco Bell or something on the base to get some lunch one day, and I'm standing in line and I turn around. And there was a guy that I grew up with that I went to school with my age that I've known for a long time in military uniform, looking at me and I'm in military uniform and I'm looking at him and I was like, Sean, and he was like, what, what are you doing here? And I looked at my uniform. I looked at his, I'm like, probably the same reason you're here. <laughs> so so, so we, we got to talking and he had joined the infantry and he was in the brigade that was uh, not too far from where my barracks was from the aviation brigade barracks. And uh, we linked up, but yeah, he, he, I, I, I didn't know he joined the army and he didn't know that I joined the army and we just kind of randomly bumped into each other at the same base at the same time in the same kind of division. So that was kind of ironic, but you know, I, I didn't know he joined Join the army. Uh, I had I had a couple other friends. I had friends that joined joined the army. Also I had friends that joined the air force. I had friends that joined the navy. I had a friend that joined the marine corps. Um, various branches, but I didn't have any of in my little circle of friends. None of us grew up talking about the military or wanting to serve in the military. It was just kind of after the fact. I found out other people that I went to school with had joined the military too. Now uh, you asked about uh, friends in the military. I mean, what once. Once I joined the army coming out of like a small town life and then into this environment where you're meeting people from everywhere, from all walks of life. I mean, the diversity in the military really, really kind of opened my eyes to um, a lot of cultures, ethnicities, like uh, just people from different parts of the regions of the country, uh, different states and cities that I'd never, never been to in kind of my small town upbringing. And, and, and you really uh, are able to make some extraordinary friendships and build really meaningful relationships in the Army. That was, that's one thing that I like the most about the military is it's, it's, it's more of a family than it is a job. And the people you serve and work with every day, um, a lot of them become like brothers and sisters to you. And over time, a lot of, I'll tell you, I've maintained relationships with a lot of people that I serve, especially in combat uh, that I served with. Um, I mean, they're like, they're, they're, they're like family to me. Um, you know, we don't, we might not talk every single day or, or week to week. Sometimes we may go extended periods of time because we're kind of just, you know, after our military careers, we're all over the place. Some are, some of my friends are still in the military. Um, but, you know, when we do reconnect, we, pick up like we never been apart, you know, and it's like, you know, we just spoke yesterday. So that's one good thing about the military. But yeah, I, I, I had a lot of friends growing up that ended up joining the military. And then when I joined the military, obviously, I ended up making, you know, really good friends within the within the military as well. So with your interest in helicopters did you ever think about joining the air force instead or just a different branch of the military in general <laughs> so <laughs> so i have friends that are in the air force right and friends that served in the air force um and obviously being in the aviation branch in the army uh you do all there's a lot of events and training and things that happen where you have interactions with the other military like for example um when we pack up our helicopters to to deploy, uh, there's only two methods of getting your your helicopters across the ocean, right? And that's on a ship or on an aircraft. 
And the Air Force has big enough airplanes that we can put aircraft. We break them down, you know, and and pack them into uh, like C-5s and C-17s, and they fly across the ocean with them. Uh, so you have interactions with the Air Force when you're doing those exercises. And even in real-world deployments, the Air Force moves a lot of our equipment for us. Um, so so um, having said that, uh, there had been times when, especially when I was, I served in South Korea for a while, and we would do... Uh, uh, we would do exercises with uh, Osan Air Force Base, and 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 two one time we we had we had uh, a mission where we changed out some of our um, UH-60 aircraft in theater, and I was the production control uh, 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 NCOIC or the person in charge of the maintenance for the for the aviation brigade, and I was charged with um, uh, overseeing the operation to uh, the, uh, a C-5 landed in Korea the new Blackhawks came off, the old Blackhawks went on, and they took them back to the States. And we did that two times. We did four and four. So we did a total of eight aircraft into, into uh, mission sets. So, um, you know, when, you, when you're planning for that and you're coordinating with the Air Force and you're going over there and you kind of get the opportunity to see their facilities, <laughs> you know, you're like, man, I don't know if I chose the right career. <laughs> so, so but 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 I'll, but I'll say that you know the Air Force uh, obviously it's 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 a good branch of service and I have a lot of good friends in the Air Force but there is a little bit of uh, I would say kind of disparity in what I would say maybe the quality of life I mean but you have to understand the Army is the Army right so the Army's job is to go fight a fight right the Army's going to go set up in the middle of nowhere like when we were you know especially in Iraq I mean we just drove into the desert and started setting up you know, and conducting when we were sleeping in the dirt, basically. So, I mean, that's, that's not what you do in the air force. Right. So, so, so there is a, there is a difference in the type of service. Right. So, so the air force has their lifestyle. Sure. Is it, is it good? Sure. Uh, the army has its lifestyle, but it's not a bad lifestyle. I mean, I mean, the army takes care of its people, uh, for the most part, you know, I mean, I had a, had a good experience with it, with the, uh, with the army and I don't, I don't, uh, regret it at all. I loved, I loved being in the army, but yeah, there is a, if, if you, if you're, if you're, if you're not, uh, the type to rough it, uh, yeah. And you want to join the military, uh, you know, the army may not be for you. You might want to give a look to the air force. That's what I would say. <laughs> that's it. That's my nod to my air force friends. I will hear this. <laughs> were there any other career options that you were interested in? Um, so yeah, so, 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 you know, the army, um, well, any of the military, I, I don't know what the, I probably don't know what the process is anymore, but I mean, at the time, do you guys still take the ASFAB test when yeah. you're in high school, the armed forces, vocational aptitude battery or whatever it's called. So, so that's like your, your kind of like your SAT or ACT for the army or, or, or excuse me for the military. Right. So you, so depending on how well you score on that test, whichever branch you want to join, you kind of can see what you qualify to join for career field wise for jobs. Right. So, um, interestingly enough, I didn't have the best grades in high school, but I did really well on my ASVAB. Um, so I scored for, so my line scores allowed me to pretty much, uh, qualify for any career field that the army had to offer. So, you know, your, your higher, um, uh, your career fields that you got to score the highest to get, obviously you got your medical field. Uh, uh, I think intelligence is up there, the intelligence career field, obviously. And then aviation is, is up there, maybe third or fourth highest that you got to, or at least 
that's how I remember it. Um, but I was dead set on aviation. Now, when I went in there, I mean, the, the, so, so you have your recruiter and then once your recruiter gets you to sign some paperwork and commit, they're going to take you eventually to do your physical after you take your ASVAB. And then once you do your physical and, and everything checks out, you know, with your body, then you talk to a career counselor that's going to tell you about the jobs that you, that are available to you and kind of coach you along to get you what you're looking for. So when I went into the room after all that and talked to my career counselor, that was going to like walk me through my line scores and what I qualified for. You know, I remember the guy was pretty much like, Hey, you know, Jason, you, you score for, you know, pretty much anything you want to do in the army. I mean, we have medical MOSs that are available, you know, this and that. And he was like running it down and I was pretty dead set on aviation. I said, Nope, I want aviation. He's like, are you sure? Cause we have, we have some of these other slots up here for some pretty good career fields. And I was like, no, I want aviation. And so yeah, he's like, okay, well, what aviation job do you want or MOS or MOS is your military occupational specialty. So it's your job. So what, what, so pick one. And so I said, I want, you know, I told him, I said, I, I want, I want Apache. That's what I want. And then, so I had it in my head. That's what I wanted when I got there. Wasn't going to let anybody talk me out of it. And that's what I walked out of there with. I, I, I enlisted as a 67 Romeo H64 attack helicopter repair. That MOS was later redesignated a 15 Romeo, but it's the, it's the same job. So H64 attack helicopter repair. So one of the most intimidating things about joining the military for a lot of young people is boot camp. So what was your experience like during that training? <laughs> so I'll tell you, as an 18-year-old kid uh, leaving Alabama, um, uh, I'll just say, you know, the first two weeks I, I, I hated life. <laughs> I regretted <laughs> everything. I didn't want to be there. I was, I was over it. I was, I laid in my, I, I did, I'm not going to say I cried or anything like that, but I definitely, re, I laid in my bed at night, just, just asking myself, what were you thinking? Why, why did you do this? You, you, you need to be back in Sims Alabama right now. But you also have to, and this is hindsight, me looking back, you know, after the, after you go through that process, that's the way it's designed. It, you're, you're supposed to go through uh, challenges and, develop um uh, you know that perspective of, of of what you you those skill sets that you need as a soldier and overcoming challenges like that is one of the things that they want to develop in you through that through that you know basic training structure and they do that with a lot of creative ways i mean harassing you all the time screaming at you you know confusing you giving you multiple things to do at once that's not possible to do to see how you react to pressure and stress and and all that and, and the first like week or two i mean they're just putting you through the ringer right i mean they're just like every night i mean they're coming through they're banging the trash cans rolling you out of the bed at two in the morning you know flipping bunks like yelling at people bullhorns i mean yeah so so that happens but it's all part of the process and and i tell you in the moment I, I, I regretted it. I wanted to go home. But as you got about halfway through, you start kind of seeing the light at the end of the tunnel and you start your mind starts to adapt into a routine. Uh, you, you start to, you know, um, your discipline, your level of discipline starts to develop. Right. And, and so you're you're uh, you know, you feel your yourself being more sure of yourself, uh, more confident. You know what to expect. Uh, you know how to anticipate what your drill sergeants are going to do um, and, and how to react to that. And you realize it's a it's a process that they're putting you through. And by the time you get, you know, to close to graduation or graduation, it, you know, you got that, you know, 
that you, you think how you felt in the beginning and you're like 180 degree different, right? You're very sure, you're very focused, you feel like a soldier, you know, you probably look like a soldier now. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so, so those first, that, those first few days are, are, are pretty, pretty intense for anybody that goes through basic training, I would say, or at least that was, that was my experience, but you overcome it. And, and that's, and that's the point is to overcome those fears and challenges. And that's all part of the, the kind of soldier development process that you go through in, in basic training. So the basic training is basically exactly like you'd see in a movie pretty much like major painter stripes. Uh, so you got Hollywood, right? So, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so there are some truths in, in movies, uh, when it comes to basic training, um, Obvious, obviously, you know, Hollywood puts the Hollywood spin on it. Um, mm. But yeah, I mean, the idea of stressing you out and, and, you know, making you feel, you know, you know, you know, putting you in those situations where, where you don't know what to do and things like that. And, and really, you know, kind of, I won't say humiliating you, but intimidating you and things like that, that you, that you see those things now, how they do that in a movie versus what they do and, uh, and, 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 actual and basic training is is not the same i would say but yeah i mean they put you in stressful situations uh but i wouldn't say it's 100 percent like the movies at all i, I have I, I don't know if i've seen a movie that depicted uh army basic training where i felt like that was a accurate portrayal of the basic training life uh so so just don't i would say don't don't watch a movie and think that's how basic training is <laughs> The 957 project was created so that students could be educated about the sacrifices and courage of the people surrounding 911. You were already in the military when this event happened. Would you mind sharing with us where you were when we were attacked and how the events of 911 affected you personally? Yeah, so um so I was actually overseas when it happened. Uh I was in South Korea. So I did, I did a, a, a few years uh, of my total time in the army. I, I served overseas, but not in combat. I served in South Korea. Um, so I remember um, I was an E4 specialist, which is kind of like a, a, a junior, a junior soldier kind of, kind of grade, if you wanted to put it on a scale. And I had just um, uh, went to the promotion board to become an E5 or a sergeant. So I was about to become what's called an NCO or non-commissioned officer. So I was about to achieve the rank of sergeant. And that's in the army. That's the point where you kind of pick up your first like serious responsibility where you're in charge of other soldiers, for example. Um, you're like a squad leader. You know, you have a few soldiers underneath you as, as a leader. Um, and so I went through the primary leadership development course, which is called something else now. But it's basically the career progression course you go through to become a sergeant uh as part of the career path um and it was it was um august in korea uh, i remember i was up at camp jackson going through pldc and we had finished up and i and i finished it was the first week of september when i finished uh pldc and my unit my the apache unit that i was with was a uh, one six uh cav or one i was in the i was in six cav brigade at the time in first squadron six cavalry regiment or one six cav uh, and they were up at the range shooting a gunnery with the aircraft. So there's this designated area we fly the aircraft up to because we shoot rockets and missiles. So there's this contained kind of area where, where you shoot the, the cannon and you shoot rockets on the range. Uh, so 
I was at PLDC and my unit was at the range. So some of my leadership came down to see the graduation from the range. And then I got on the truck and went back to Camp Eagle was where I was, I was duty stationed at. So um, any, any organization in the army has a 24 hour duty desk. So when I got back, it was, um, it was uh, like September 8th or 9th. Uh, and then the, the NCOIC or the person in charge back at the base, when all the unit left to go North was like, Hey, specialist uh you know i know you're about to get promoted i was just waiting for, you know I, I was waiting for my unit to come back and they were going to do a promotion ceremony for me and then i was going to become a sergeant and so he said hey, i know you're about to get promoted so would you mind doing staff duty uh as the runner which is a duty that the junior soldiers do he goes this will be the last time you ever have to be a runner since you're going to get promoted soon so I was, I was a good sport and i was like yeah sure I'll, I'll i'll sit at the desk overnight so this is this is you know september um uh 11th that in 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 korea now korea depending on where you're at in the u.s is about 12 hours plus or minus ahead right so i was on staff duty on september 11th that morning so it was still september 10th at night in the u.s during this time so all day i was on desk my unit comes back from the range uh my my commander uh comes up to me and he goes hey hey uh, uh specialist mcnutt hey sorry about the duty i heard they tagged you for duty hey i want to promote you tomorrow so it's a 24-hour duty you sit at the desk all night so he says tomorrow at 0900 when you get off which is 9 a.m and so when you get off duty come over to the hangar we're gonna do a quick promotion ceremony for me uh for you and um and then i'm gonna give you a four-day pass which like he was gonna give me like that was a Wednesday and he was going to give me like Thursday, Friday off plus Saturday and Sunday. And I just come back to work on Monday. So I was like score. So you get the next day off anyway. Plus I was going to get, so I was going to have like five days off basically. So, so I was like, sweet. So, you know, everybody's putting their equipment up, the aircraft fly back, everybody secures the aircraft on the airfield. And I'm sitting on the desk and on the base every night at 10 PM, uh, they play taps over the intercom system. Uh, so the, the NCO, the sergeant, the staff sergeant that I was with was like, Hey, uh, you can go take dinner, child, go, go get something to eat. When you hear me play taps, cause we have a little machine in there where we play taps, you come back and, um, and, uh, and relieve me and I'll do my security checks. Cause we have to walk around the base and do all the security checks and stuff on the base. So, um, so I'm over at the barracks. It's, you know, uh, nine, nine, nine 30. Uh, you know, and I'm, I, and I'd already ate and I'm in the crew chief barracks and I'm in my buddy's room and we're kind of piled up, you know, soldiers in the pile up in somebody's room and everybody's watching a movie. So we're just killing time. Right. So we're sitting there watching, I forget what movie we're watching, but one of my buddies, another crew chief from down the hall just comes running in, kicks the door open. Dude, 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 turn, turn the TV on. We're about to go to war. Now, when you're in the military, every time you have like an international thing that happens where you see breaking news, the running joke is, oh, here we go. I guess we're going to go to war, you know, but it's just more of a joke than seriousness uh, because you're in the military and that's your job is to go, you know, fight a war. But um, so he comes in and we're like, yeah, whatever, dude, shut up. We're watching a movie. And he's like, no, seriously, turn on the TV, turn on the TV. And we're like, dude, get out of here. And he just runs over to the TV and starts turning off the DVD player or whatever. And starts, you know, and, and like CNN, I think, pops up on the TV and you could see one of the towers in New York was smoking. And we're sitting there watching and somebody in the room was like, what movie is this? Is this some, you know, somebody's like, this looks like a Spielberg movie or something, you know? And then and he's like, no, I just got off the phone with my mom back home. Something happened in New York. This is really happening right now. And then I was like, 
you know, my the, the guy's rumors, he goes, this, this, the TV's on CNN right now, that th- this is actually CNN. And he flipped to another like NBC or some other news station and the same thing was on. And then that's when I kind of realized I was like, uh Oh, and then I took off running. I was like, I'm on staff duty. I need to get back to the, to the, to the base, to the uh, squadron headquarters. So I run across camp Eagle. It's a really small base. So it's, you know, just ran right across to the other side of base and run in and the sergeant was on the phone and he turns around when he sees me, he throws me the arm room, arms room keys where we keep our weapons. And he's told me to go open the arms room, meet the arms room, uh, uh, EOC that, that runs arms room. We open the arms room and start handing out, we, we started handing out weapons and people were showing up, you know, like what's going on. And I didn't know what was going on. I was like, just find your squad leader, find your platoon sergeant, go, go fight that. Like, I don't have any answers. And you know, the arms room guy was handing out weapons and I run back around to the CQ desk and now the squadron commander standing there with the sergeant major, all of our you know top leadership for the squadron was standing there, the XO, the S3, you know, and, and, and they're all just intently staring, kind of standing there looking at the little TV in the, in the staff duty or squadron duty area uh, or our staff duty for the, in the little squadron area. And, and, at, and I remember just turning and looking at the TV and seeing a second plane hit the building. And I remember the squadron commander at the time, it might have been him or maybe the XO. One of the leaders was like, we're going to war. This is intentional. So at first, you know, it was all speculation, maybe just a, it was an accident. And then, and then we saw, you know, an inset in, picture in picture kind of in the corner of the TV. I remember seeing the Pentagon when the Pentagon, the Pentagon was smoking. And then it was just like, reality kind of started to sit in a little bit like well first it was kind of really surreal i remember feeling a surreal sensation like is this is the united the united states of america is actually being attacked this is this is crazy like this is insane you know so so yeah it was very surreal feeling and and you know we went into like our protocols for securing and locking down the base we went to blackout turned all the lights out and everything we had soldiers roving around the airfield with night vision goggles, armed, you know, we had the, the Korean military surrounded our base, you know, because we were an Apache unit. So we had Korean infantry outside the fence guarding us because we didn't know what was going on at the time. You know, so all the overseas bases went into a full lockdown, like full up security. We don't know what to expect kind of thing, but we need to be on guard. Uh, and, and and so that was how the night went. <laughs> it was chaos it was hectic uh the next day when i got off duty you know i kind of made my way over to the hangar i found you know my 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 comp the, the little company area the troop area and my company commander or troop commander was down there he uh he was like hey sergeant we're gonna we're gonna promote you right over here real quick so they like pinned my rank on me real quick and they were like i know i told you you were gonna get a four-day pass i'm sorry buddy but uh you're now going to, instead of being, being a soldier on the guard, you're now the sergeant of the guard. So I need you to go back home. <laughs> so, I did. <laughs> so it was like 48 hours. I didn't get much sleep and I finally was able to get a nap, but we were on, you know, all through that weekend, we were on uh, high alert uh, and we remained on high alert for the next couple of weeks that I remember. Uh, but yeah, I was in South Korea and that's, that's how, that's how it played out, you know, and we were just, uh, you know, flights were canceled for a long time. We couldn't, you know, there are people that were scheduled to fly back home because their tour was over and flights were being canceled. So they had to be extended in Korea for extended tours of duty, which wasn't fun because there are people that were like wanting to get back home to families. And, you know, there were some of our, 
I remember one of our pilots had a, I think he's, his wife was pregnant and he was trying to get back home, you know, to see his child being born and his flight got canceled. And I don't remember what happened to that, but, you know, people were dealing with, with their lives trying to get back home from overseas. So it was, uh, it was hard, uh, very, very surreal and, uh, very, uh, you know, it was, it was just a, a very unique time to be alive and to experience, especially if you're wearing a uniform at the time. Well, let's transition and talk more about your deployments. The one that stuck out to me was your time in South Korea. What was it like being stationed there? Yeah. So, so when we, so, so just real quick, so for deployments, so um, yeah, so, so, so going to South Korea isn't a deployment in the combat sense. Like obviously we aren't fighting an active war in South Korea. So when we, when we go to uh, a country like South Korea or, or Germany, uh, that's a duty, what we call a duty station. You're just being reassigned to another location that happens to be outside the country. So, you know, Korea is, is awesome. I mean, I enjoyed, I did, um, I did a total of about five to six years total time, total military time in, in Korea. Um, I really enjoyed living in South Korea. Um, it was a unique experience. I made a lot of uh, friends, uh, a lot of Korean friends. Um, I, you know, like when you, when you go to somewhere like Korea, at least when I was in, so, so, so soldiers typically have two experiences. So you have my experience where you get out and you take in the culture, you, you, you meet people, uh, you know, you experience the food, the, the history, everything. You go to museums, you go to, you know, um, uh, out in the cities, out and about and just take, take it in because it's something that, you, that is, that is uh, different to you as an American and to see how another country kind of compares to what you know to be your country is very interesting to me. Or you have the second experience where I just want to sit in my barracks room and play video games and wait out my year and go back home because I don't want to be here. Um, unfortunately, you know, you know, there are people that, that have no uh, curiosity or interest in experiencing the culture that when they go over there. But, but I, you know, I tend to persuade people to get out when I was there. I would always tell my soldiers to, to get out and experience the culture. You won't regret it. And um, so, so um, I learned to read and write Hangul the Korean language uh, when I was there. I can still read and write Hangul to this day, although a second language is a diminishing skill. So if you don't use it, you lose it. So, uh, but when I was there and I was practicing Hangul every day, speaking it, um, you know, I could go into a Korean restaurant and order food in, in Korean. I could get into a taxi and tell the, the cab driver where I wanted to go. I could go to the bus or train station and I could read the train or bus schedules and get a ticket and go. I was like fully autonomous. I didn't need a translator. I didn't need any help. And, you know, and, and I would just, you know, if I had free time, I was out in, in, in Korea. I didn't stay on the base. I didn't want to, you know, I would go on base to work. And then when I wasn't working, I wanted to like experience this. And that's really the perspective um, that I had when I was there. That was, that was my goal was to experience the culture. And I'm really glad I did uh, because it's uh, South Korea has got a very, rich history, a very vibrant culture. The the people, the Korean people are just great people. Like I, 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 I've lost touch with a lot of my Korean friends that I had over the years. Unfortunately, uh, I still have one or two contacts like on Facebook or LinkedIn or something like, you know, a social media platform. But uh, I, I would, I would really, you know, 
like to go back and visit Korea, like as a vacation uh, at, at some point in the future. Um, but yeah, the, Korea, Korea was awesome. And, and any time the, the military puts you in a position to experience another country, maybe not in a combat situation, but just as a, as a duty station like South Korea or Germany or some other place the army sends people, um, you know, I always encourage the soldiers and tell them experience the world around you. Go take it in. It's, 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 it's an awesome experience and one that will serve you well later in life. So learning the native language of wherever you are helps broaden the experience. Ab absolutely. You know, we, we, we in, in Korea, so, so Korea has this program um, where we have actually Korean soldiers that are, that are kind of mixed in the unit. We, so, so we call them Katusas and it's K-A-T-U-S-A. -A. So it's Korean augmentee to the United States Army. So the Korean Army basically assign soldiers to us. Now, the Katusa soldiers that we get, they generally speak English to some degree, some better than others. Um, but the Katusa soldiers that I worked with uh, would, would tease me because I spoke, I spoke Korean, right? And they would be like, they would tease me, oh, Sergeant, you're, you're more Korean than we are. You know, it's like, like you, like you, cause I, cause, cause I, I would, I would, let's say, you know, it's Monday, right? And the last weekend I went to like some location in South Korea, some new, it's for some new experience. We'd go to like, uh, like every year, for example, every year in Korea, they would have this event uh, down on the West coast of uh, Southwest coast uh, called Mudfest, the mud festival. And down at Daechon beach uh, in Boryang, there's this, there's this uh, beach where, um, if I'm remembering correctly, the, the Korean culture, there's like uh, medicinal properties in the mud in that area. Like if you put it on your skin, you know, like women do the mud face kind of things, you know, to, to exfoliate their skin or whatever. So, so, so Koreans would, would uh, go to Daechon Beach for that mud and would wipe it on them, uh, you know, and it turned into this huge, it evolved over the many, many years into the mud festival. And they have like big stages on the beach with concerts and like, I mean, it, they go all out for Mudfest and it's a great experience. So like, you know, it's Monday and I just came back from Mudfest with some of my friends. And so I'm talking to the Katusas. I'm like, yeah, man, I went down to Mudfest and they're like, oh, really? You went to, they're like, Shire, you went to Mudfest? And I'm like, I'm like, yeah, like, you, like, I, and I said that assuming you're Korean and you live here. So I'm assuming you've been to Mudfest before. It's like me assuming you've been to Disneyland because Disneyland's in America. Right. <laughs> so, so like, but not everybody's been to Disneyland. Right. So he's like, oh, I've never been to, I've never been to Mudfest. And I was like, I was confused. I was like, wow. And then it, you know, it was like, so they would tease me like, cause I would have all these experiences like that. Like in a lot of Katusas, you know, haven't, you know, haven't had that. And, uh, and so, yeah, it was, uh, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was a very unique experience. So yeah. So, so like learning, learning the language and just familiarizing yourself with culture, like, like social norms, uh, like just like little head nod bows, you know, it's very common for, for like, when you meet somebody, you kind of just do like a little, uh, like a nod bow. It, it, it makes you fit in. It makes them feel more comfortable to talk to you. And, and when you show interest in their culture, Man, you just make so many friends, and and I made I just made so many I made so many good Korean friends that that's just something that I've always treasured later later in life is that that experience. So, how are your experiences in the Middle East different from South Korea? Oh well, um, obviously, you know, in in Iraq and Afghanistan, that was combat, right? So. You know, I didn't go to, 
you know, I went to Korea as, as a temporary assignment and I lived there, right? I lived and worked there. It was just like taking your job, you know, imagine your mom or dad's job, their company sending them from this location to another location to basically do the same thing for a temporary for a year and then, and then they come back. So that's how Korea is right now, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan obviously is a combat deployment. So we're responding to, you know, obviously for Afghanistan, we're responding to the attacks on 9-11. And our job is to, you know, go defend the country, seek out these terrorist networks and, you know, and, and fight the good fight, right? So that's, so, so, we, so, so, so the experience is dramatically different for one, just the environment is much different. Obviously, you're in the desert. Uh, and in Afghanistan, you're in a mountainous desert environment. Uh, Iraq is way more flat uh, for the most part than, than Afghanistan. Afghanistan is very rocky, very mountainous, um, very desolate, very, very desolate areas in, in Afghanistan. Um, so I, I would say we were there for combat. So obviously, when, you're, when we showed up to Afghanistan, one of the, one of the first kind of big eye-opening experiences is I'm, I'm from Alabama, right? And, and, and Kentucky weather is probably not much different. You know, you got hot summers, right? You got really hot summers. So, you know, you grow up in the South, that's like part of life. Like, like hot doesn't matter to me. So like I, I played baseball and basketball, you know, I got, I got the basic training in South Carolina running. We had guys from like New York, Chicago, West Coast. They never experienced in South Carolina, the humidity that you get. And they were just like, these are track guys that ran track that were falling out of runs and stuff. And I'm just kind of, you know, just running along. And, and so that they, they, it was a different experience for them because they were from a different part of the country and they never experienced that level of humidity. For me, that's my norm. That's not normal for them. We get to Afghanistan and your norms change, right? So, so we're obviously wearing our battle rattle, right? We got on, you know, helmets, Kevlar helmets, we got on our flat jackets with with plates inside. You know, we're carrying bags. We got ammo. We got our weapons. So you know, you're depending on you know your assigned gear. You might be carrying around forty to sixty pounds of extra gear on top of you. Uh, you know, while you're just walking around the base, not really doing anything. Um, so I remember our flight surgeon, our, our, our flight doc, he was, you know, running around telling everybody, you know, reminding everybody to hydrate. Now in the army, you're always told to hydrate. So like drinking water becomes second nature. So like, you know, doctoring around, hey, hydrate, hydrate, drink water, drink water. You know, and I, and I got to the point where, you know, me, I was like, of course we got to drink water, doc. You know, it's like, it's like we, we, we always drink water. Like when we're on the flight line back at Fort Campbell, we're always drinking water because you're out on a hot flight line all day. So he was like, you know, you don't understand. This is a different type of heat. So I have never experienced that type of heat. <laughs> so, so, so the fact that I wasn't sweating very much, subconsciously, I guess I thought I wasn't that hot or my body temperature wasn't that hot because I wasn't sweating. But when you have a dry heat versus a humid heat, your sweat evaporates more quickly. So you're your clothes don't get like soggy, just soaked down wet. Like if you're outside running around playing a football game outside in your backyard, you just get drenched with sweat in the summer, right? You're running around with your buddies, like playing a football game, you just get really, really wet. Uh, it wasn't like that. The, 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 now under your body armor, like, like, you know, you, you'd get like wet between your body armor and like your t-shirt. But like, if you took your body armor off and you just had like your t-shirt or maybe your, 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 uh, your jacket top was, was on, um, 
I, you didn't sweat that much and it was really weird. So I wasn't drinking enough water and, and like, I didn't, I didn't pass out, but I started to realize, like I started feeling kind of a little woozy, you know, and I was like, I'm not drinking enough water. And, and literally, so the doc was like, I said, Hey doc, how much water do you recommend we drink? Cause I felt like I was drinking a lot of water and he was like six liters of water a day at a minimum. And I was like six wow. liters, liters. So literally you're walking around chugging water and you're like going to the bathroom, like every like 15, 20 minutes, you got to pee. Right. So it's oh. like, yeah. So, 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 yeah. So, so, so like that was a new experience and like, and, and your body has to adjust to take in that lot. Cause I mean, I just felt bloated and waterlogged from drinking so much water, but you had to, but after a while it becomes second nature. You just, your body gets used to taking in that much liquid at, at, at in a short amount of time during the day. And so that that experience, and then just the the sandstorms. I don't know if you ever seen the movie The Mummy, or that wall of sand with the face kind of moves in over the city. So except for the face, that's real. <laughs> so so it looks it looks like that when it's coming towards you. It looks like this big wall of sand. So uh, so getting used to the sandstorms and always just feeling you're dirty all the time, right? You're just like, cause there's sand blowing around and it's sticking to you and you're just feeling nasty. And, you know, for the, for the first while we didn't really have showers set up or anything. So you're just kind of, you know, bird bathing it with your canteens, dumping water on you, you know, and wiping down and stuff, trying to stay clean. And it was, uh, so, so the weather was a very eye opening experience for me when I first got to Afghanistan. In your 25 plus years of experience in the military, what was the biggest lesson you learned about the world and the people in it? Um, wow, that's a that's a good question. Um, so 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 I got so that 20 that 25 years. So I got about you know a little less than half of that was in the army. The other half is within the Department of Defense as a civilian with what I do now. Um, but. Um, I'll tell you, uh, for, for, for you guys that don't have any living memory of how life was prior to September 11th, um, what a lot of things that you guys consider normal today was not normal then. Um, it, it, as simple as just going through an airport, your airport experience is much, is much different. Um, uh, a lot of security measures that have been put in place since then uh, were not kind of kind of normal. Uh, the airport is just one example. I mean, uh, you know, you see a lot more buildings with controlled metal detectors and and things like. I mean, just a just a heightened sense of security, right? Um, that was a big uh, change to I think life in general around the world. I think um, I know I know uh, right after September 11th, when when you know obviously our country was attacked, um, one of the one of the most gratifying um, experiences was seeing how the world um, came to the aid of the U.S. So, so we described kind of you know nine eleven was was you know, World War II their 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 seminal event was Pearl Harbor right. So for my generation, it was nine eleven. You know that started a war right uh, for a long period of time. Um, so, so when that happened, seeing how the world rushed to the aid of the U.S. and was just there to help was very—it um, was just an awesome experience to see how the world wrapped their arms around us. Um, 
when I remember when I got to Afghanistan, I didn't have so much of an appreciation for it in the moment. This is just me reflecting many years after the fact. Uh, but I remember being in Afghanistan and going down to like the chow hall to get some food. And, you know, we always described it as the, uh, the original star Wars movie where they walk into the cantina and you see all the, all the different like, like species, you know, in the cantina. So you walk into the chow hall in Afghanistan and you kind of, just see all different militaries from around the world. You know, you see the Brits, the Aussies, the Canadians, the Germans, the French, the Romanians, I mean, Italian. I mean, you just saw all these different and, and countries that you didn't really expect to see. I mean, you'd expect to see your big allies like the British and the Canadians, the Australians. Those were like big, you know, allies for the US. So you kind of expected to see those guys there. But like we saw, I remember seeing like Romanians, for example, and like, uh, you know, you, you, you see those guys in their uniforms and the way that their parents, I mean, some of them had beards, you know, and stuff. So like in the military, you gotta be clean shaving. So it was just kind of weird to see the other kind of uh, military norms from those other services as you kind of in, had some interaction with them on the bases when they were there to, to, to help, you know, fight the fight. Uh, so that was a, that was a very interesting, uh, interesting experience. Um, but I, 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 I just think, you know, the world, as, as, as you reflect for someone that had a living memory before September 11th, I just think that like looking back and you remember how it used to be diverse. And, and I don't say that to mean that it's bad, uh, you know, worse or, or anything like that. I don't mean any negativity when I say it, but it's just different. Uh, it changed that, that, you know, it, it, it's an understatement to say that 9-11 changed, changed our future. Uh, for for human history, because it, it, I mean, it, it obviously did in many many ways. So so yeah, it's just a uh, we definitely live in a different reality than we probably would be living otherwise if nine eleven had had never had happened. So let's swap to your service here in the U.S. Can you tell us about your work at the Pentagon? Yeah, so previous, so, so I've been in here in Huntsville, Alabama for uh, almost two years now, but the five years prior to that, um, I work with Defense Contract Management Agency. So our agency is responsible for uh, accepting all the goods and services that the Department of Defense procures uh, for the military. So, so think of us as the factory where a tank or a plane or a missile or a bomb or a helicopter is being manufactured. Uh, we have uh, uh, qualified personnel in plant that represent the, the government to oversee the contract for that contractor that's making that item. And we do all the inspection and acceptance and oversight to make sure that the, uh, the, the military is getting what they paid for and, and, and the taxpayer dollars for that contractor being spent properly. Um, <clears throat> so in that role, I'm able, I, I, I've been fortunate to be able to see a lot of our defense industry across the country where a lot of our military equipment is produced <clears throat> and having that experience led me to a position in Washington DC uh, with the CMA uh, where I supported our, our, our Pentagon uh, organization. So think of the network across the country of all the defense industry that's building and making stuff for the military. <clears throat> We analyze, synthesize all that information about how those contracts are going, how well they're performing, and that information gets relayed to senior leaders in the Pentagon for people that need to make uh, the, the big decisions on how we make investments for the military. So that was really kind of the overall summary of my role is to, 
I was kind of more or less an analyst that collected a lot of information and, and, and kind of made sense of what that information meant. And then I gave that information to senior leaders in the building to inform the decision-making process for how we, how we spend our uh, military budget for acquisitions and contracting uh, for weapon systems. So, so, so that, so working in the Pentagon, you know, walking the halls of the Pentagon, I remember I was, you know, I remember the kind of like when I first got there. Um, so my office was in, in Crystal City. I actually sit, if, if you're not familiar with, with North Arlington, so the Pentagon doesn't actually sit in Washington, D.C. It sits on the south side of the Potomac River. It's actually Arlington, but it, we call it Washington, D.C. I mean, but it's just across, it's across the river, right? So, so like that area, North Arlington, Virginia is where I live, but it's the D.C. metro area. So uh, I lived right next to the Pentagon in an apartment. And so uh, my office was in Crystal City. And then the Pentagon was right near there, right? So I would go over to the Pentagon for meetings. And so I remember when I first got to DC and just walking the halls, the, the one really cool thing, cool story that I, or cool to me that I tell people about the Pentagon, <clears throat> once, you're, once your ID, once they give you access where you can just take your DOD ID and just scan and walk into the building, you have building access. Um, I had this expectation that you know in this building this is where the secretary of defense works this is where the the secretary of the army works you know the secretary of the navy secretary of the air i mean the top leadership and this is where the joint chief of staff works you know four-star generals from all the services uh a lot of important people work in this building right and i had this now outside the pentagon there's obviously a a, a pretty decent level of security as you would imagine but once you get inside i was expecting to see I had this perception that like there was going to be like, you know, armed guards like all over the place and stuff like that. And it, it wasn't. So like, so like you can walk down the halls and pretty much just walk right up to the door of the, of the secretary of defense. I mean, I wouldn't recommend walking in his office, but, but I mean, you, the hallway there, and it's kind of like a little museum. They have like paintings and memorabilia and cases and stuff. So like, walking on the on the uh on the on the on the corridor there um it's really cool experience because you're like oh that's the secretary of defense's officer that's the secretary of the army's office and it's really kind of like you just kind of mind your business and walk through and kind of take in the sites and all the little things uh like you know they have like the the general macarthur hallway where they have macarthur's cob pipe and like all this little uniform stuff you know and they have like you know a little vietnam section with all this like memorabilia from vietnam and you know, they have like uh, on the MacArthur one, they have the, the declaration where Japan uh, signed the, uh, uh, the paper where they, you know, uh, uh, you know, were, were defeated. You know, they gave up, they surrendered uh, to, to the U.S. So that's on display uh, with the photograph with, uh, with where, where it happened on the Navy ship where it happened. Uh, you know, so, so the museum, so the, the, I tell people the Pentagon, a lot of it, a lot of areas in the Pentagon are like a mini museum. And most people that don't, don't get to see that because they don't, they don't have access to the building. I mean, you can take a Pentagon tour, but they only show you some stuff. But when you have access to the building, you can just walk around the whole building, basically. Now you can't go into the office space where they have controlled access to those areas, but just the hallways, I would roam the hallways sometimes and just take in the sites in the Pentagon. And it was just a really cool opportunity. I was very fortunate to be able to be in a position to just be able to take that in and walk around because I'm a little bit of a history buff. So living in Washington, D.C., obviously there's a lot of museums there, but going into the Pentagon and taking in, taking in that when I, when I didn't have 
work to do and I could just had some time to kill and I could just walk around and take in the sights. That was uh that was pretty cool. If you can, will you tell some of your hardest moments in the military for you? Oh, um, so yeah, so so obviously, you know, I'm I'm speaking to you in hindsight. This is after many many years of military of, of my military service. So had you asked me that question, you know, six months after I joined the army, I'd have told you basic training was the hardest thing that I've ever done. Um, and, and that's no longer the case. <laughs> so, so obviously after you come back from a combat deployment, um, that really changes your perspective. Um, if you, if you served in the military and kind of like a peacetime garrison environment where you're just kind of on the base, kind of training and doing your job day to day, that's obviously a different experience than if you get deployed to combat. So, you know, I, I will tell you, um, during, during the combat deployment, um the stress that you're put under um uh, uh lack of sleep you're always on the go um i can tell you like for example our aircraft obviously being being a, a maintainer for attack helicopters you know our our pilots were flying missions to support ground troops in afghanistan for example um and and uh several of our aircraft were damaged pretty pretty good um now, prior to that, I had never seen actual combat damage to an aircraft. Um, you're only kind of explained that in like a training environment. You don't ever get to see it. And every, every, um, every piece of combat damage to an aircraft, whether it be small arms fire, RPG, or some type of larger round S60s or, or, or something of that nature, but um, it all look, it, nothing ever really looks the same you know, it, it's depending on where it hits the aircraft. Um, and I remember getting all this information told to us about, um, about the first company that we sent over alpha company, uh, was fight fighting the fight, you know, the killer spades and, and they were coming back shot up is what we were being told. And I remember, you know, when the aircraft flew back and landed and they got, I got close enough. I mean, when they came in on formation distance, I was expecting to see like smoke and flames coming out of the, out of the aircraft because of the way it was being told to us about the type of damage that they were sustaining uh, when they were um, uh, fighting Operation Anaconda and that mission uh, in the Shaycott Valley and then Tora Bora Mountains. But when they, in the distance, when they were flying up, it looked like they were coming back from a, um, from a mission uh from the um from the uh um uh you know come back from a mission from like a training uh mission uh until they got close enough and they started taxiing around and we were walking up to the aircraft and meeting the pilots it was um and you started to see holes in aircraft for the first time and it really caught me off guard and you know obviously we went into maintenance mode with me and the, my team i had a really great team of maintainers and we just started fixing aircraft we're doing what we knew what we were trained to do um but that experience in that moment that sense of overwhelming like am i gonna because you know like your job your job revolves around keeping these aircraft in a flyable state so that the pilots can continue to do their mission and if the pilots can't continue to fly these aircraft that means soldiers on the ground that are engaging in combat are going to be less likely to survive if they don't have the proper air support when they need it. So a sense of realism sets in that if I don't 
do this as quickly and efficiently as possible to turn this aircraft back over to the flight company so these pilots can get back in this aircraft. That's one less aircraft that's going to be available when our ground forces need them. So the sense of urgency uh, kind of really takes over in your, in your job. Um, you're looking at the pilots that are climbing out of these and, and a lot of the pilots I'm friends with to this day that I keep in really good contact with. And it's just amazing what our organization did, what the pilots did, what the maintainers did. But in that moment, I just remember utter exhaustion at times, um, just a sense of overwhelming, like, is this going to ever end? Because it seems like every time we get one fixed, we get another one that shot up. Um, and it was just, you know, it was rinse and repeat. Fix one, one gets shot up. Fix one, one gets shot up. And it was just, every time we had aircraft going out, it seems like they were coming back with more holes in them. And, you know, and I was like, you know, trying to get parts, you know, you don't want to run out of parts. Obviously, you want to keep these aircraft up. So it's like this big effort, you know, it wasn't, I was just one maintainer out of a whole team of people that was doing the exact same thing, all collectively trying to maintain these aircraft. And uh, it, it was that those first, uh, you know, first initial days and weeks in country, uh, you know, with the hydration issues that I described to you earlier, plus all the combat uh, damage that we were trying to repair and figure out. Because I mean, a lot of it was touch and go. I mean, you don't you don't get trained to say, hey, when a main rotor blade has an AK-47 bullet hole in it, here's how you repair that. Like, mm -hmm. there's no, like, standard repair for a bullet hole in an aircraft for, for a main rotor blade. You have to, okay, where did it hit? What part of the blade is damaged? How much material is gone? And every repair is unique to that specific area of damage depending on the, the 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 component so we learned a lot about the extent to which our aircraft could fly and to what we can maintain and we really pushed the boundaries um, we didn't realize what we were doing then but we really pushed the boundaries of army aviation in general that time and i was really fortunate to just have to just to serve with a great, great group of people during that time that made all those, all those bad moments, <laughs> you know, kind of seem not so bad when you kind of look to your left and right and you see the people you're there with and you're like, yeah, we're going to, we're, we're going to be all right. We're going to, we're going to get through this. So, you know, when you had one of those days at the end of the day, when the day finally ended, you're like, man, I don't know if I can do this again. You just kind of look left and right. You see the people you're there with and you, you know what, we're going to, we're going to do this. We're going to wake up tomorrow and we're going to do it even better. And, and that was just the, the experience. So you'd get overwhelmed and then you'd get this sense of we're going to be okay. And then you just kind of get overwhelmed again and you're just like, you know what, we're going we're gonna to be okay. You just keep fighting through it. You push and push and push and, uh, and, and you just, you, that's, that's, that's what the, the army life is about. It's about the team, the collective, uh, doing your job for the, for the soldier to your left and right and making sure everybody comes home. Uh, let's say someone in your family or close circle wanted to join the military and didn't know where to start. What advice would you give them to get them started and to help them while in the military? Um, so, so, so I'll use my nephew as an example. I actually have a nephew right now that's in uh, uh, Marion Military Institute. He's about to complete. I'm going to go see his graduation this Saturday, and then he's going to transfer to a university back home and finish his degree. And then he is uh, hopefully he's going to get a commission in the Army is what he's wanting to do right now. Um, so I've had to give him a lot of advice. Right. So he, 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 see, he seeks me out with a lot of questions and a lot of career advice. And so what what I, I will describe 
you know, how I've, how I've helped my, my nephew. So, you know, if I had somebody that I care about, family member or friend, you know, Hey, I'm thinking about joining, joining the military. What do you think? Well, you know, the first thing you gotta, you gotta work through is, you know, I tell them it's a huge commitment that this is not just a job that you're going to go do. This is going to be a way of life. It's a culture, you know, it's, you're going to have to, you're going to experience extraordinary sacrifice. Um, uh, joining the military, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to be developed into, into a soldier. Right. And that's the process that I, that I was describing earlier with the, with the combat basic training. So the, but that process never ends, you know, the, the mentoring process in the military continues on through the duration of your career, the professional growth, the mentoring, um, you're, you're, you're constantly, as you progress through the military, you're going to be giving positions of increased responsibility. You're always going to be giving more responsibility, more, never less. You're always giving more at the next grade, the next promotion, you're going to be given more. So, you know, you become a sergeant, you're in charge of a squad. You might have five or six Joes or, or soldiers that you're in charge of, you know, you get promoted to, you know, a senior NCO and you become a platoon sergeant, you have a whole platoon of Joes, maybe 50, 60 soldiers or more. Uh, you become a first sergeant, you're in charge of a company, you know, you might have hundreds of soldiers, you become a sergeant major, you may have thousands of soldiers, you know, uh, depending on the organization that you take, you know, if you're an officer, you become a platoon leader, you can have a small platoon. And as you progress up to company commander, battalion commander, brigade commander, I mean, I, I have a really good friend of mine who, who is a brigade commander at Fort Campbell right now, who is one of our lieutenants in my unit when we deployed to Afghanistan and Iraq. Really great guy. And he's the brigade commander at, at Fort Campbell now for the Combat Aviation Brigade. You know, so, so you know, he, you know that, that he's in charge of thousands of people, right? A large organization, all the helicopters for the 101st Airborne Division. That's a, an enormous responsibility for somebody to, to take on. So just understand that you're going to constantly be challenged throughout your military career with increased roles of responsibility, but it's rewarding work. It is very, very rewarding work. There's gonna be some bad days that you're gonna have in the military, just like any job. There's gonna be some really bad days sometimes, um, but there's gonna be great, great experiences that are gonna shape your perspective in your life. So if anyone asks me, should they join the military? I'm never gonna tell somebody don't join the military. But for somebody that's seeking to join the military, just on a initial phase, I would say, um, I would say, um, hey, um, here, 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 here's here's the deal you need to think about first. Um, what are your interests? Are, are you are you okay with discipline? Because because some 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 young people, especially you know teenagers, you go through your little rebellious phase and and you kind of reject discipline, like I did when I was a teenager. We kind of go through that phase as, as kids growing up and come becoming young adults. Um, you know, you got you got to think through that. Um, you know, if you don't like discipline, if you don't like authority, don't join the military. But if you're in my position as a kid where I didn't have a lot of direction about what I wanted to do, uh, I never really put any plans in place. Um, I and 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 I felt like I needed that guidance, that direction that I didn't have. The military will do that for you. The military will afford you a lot of opportunity to grow personally and professionally, to do things that you never thought you would do before in life. And, uh, and, and it's a very unique and rewarding uh, experience that will benefit you well in life. I mean, and just after, after the fact, after your service, I mean, there's a lot of benefits to just being a veteran. 
that, that served in the military. You know, I mean, I, I, I don't, I'm obviously not saying join the military for benefits, but, but, uh, but, but, but you do get, you do get compensated on the backside for being a veteran. Right. And, and, and that's, and that's, that, that's nice to have sometimes. Um, so there are, you know, um, uh, benefits after, after life for your, for your military service, uh, afterwards, uh, that's, uh, that's nice to have, but, you know, it just all depends on your unique situation. If you think, uh, that you need a little help with focusing your life, you don't really might not want to go directly to college, might want to get out on your own, get away from home, uh, really quick and establish yourself. Um, yeah, the army did that for me. I, I was able to do that in the army. Um, if you want to go my nephew's route and you want to go the college route and do the ROTC, uh, the army is going to cover your college expenses when you commission, you know, any of the military branches do that. Uh, so, so he's, so he's going to get his degree and then join the military and basically be debt free. You know, he's not going to have to, he's not going to be drowning in college debt. So there's that route too. Now, had I did to do all over again, I would probably do exactly what my nephew's doing right now. I, I would, I would probably go the commissioned route. Uh, but, uh, but I, but, you know, I don't have any regrets. I, I, I love my military career, but that's, that's why I'm urging him to do that because you get an education out of the deal. Uh, you get a career path out of the deal and then, and then your experience afterwards, you can use all that training and education from the military to apply to your civilian life as I have done after, uh, your, your military service obligation is complete. Well, can you tell me what you do in your free time now that you're no longer deployed? Oh, um, so, uh, I told you guys, uh, when we first got on the phone, like right now I'm, uh, I'm actually, uh, in the middle of planning a wedding. <laughs> so, yeah. so right now, right now, my, right now my, my free time has been consumed with, with wedding planning. So, so, but, uh, me, me and my wife, you know, we, we enjoy traveling. Uh, she, she likes to travel. We have a lot of the same, uh, uh, likes in terms of that. So, uh, we, we, will take little trips here and there. Um, uh, uh, a couple years ago, we took a cross country trip, uh, to her family out in Nevada. We drove cross country there and back and stopped and saw a lot of the sites along the ways. So traveling is a, is a big, is, is, is a big, uh, hobby of mine. I really like to see stuff. Um, but really, I mean, we, we, since we moved to Huntsville, we bought a house and so I've, so obviously owning a house is its own job <laughs> Ask your parents, how, how that is. But, uh, so, so, uh, uh, like I, I do little projects around the house, keep my time busy, like landscaping outside and stuff like that. Like just home improvement stuff has become a hobby, but I would say my biggest hobby is traveling, just seeing, seeing the world, seeing the country. Hmm. Uh, this, this is a podcast that seeks stories of courage, resilience, service, and teamwork. Do you have any memories from your service that match these themes that we've not already discussed? Um, I, I think I touched on the teamwork aspect earlier in terms of my combat deployment. I mean, and I really can't stress, uh, stress that enough. Um, the, the courage piece, I, I mean, when you're, when you're, you know, people, you know, always will use that or brave or, or maybe the word hero or courage, courageous, you know, for people that have been to combat. And, I, and I'll tell you, like, there, there's things that I saw uh, in combat that I would describe as courageous, uh, people doing courageous acts, people that I would describe as a hero, uh, people that I would describe as being, you know, so selfless in their service to others and, and just their bravery in the, in the face of, of um, 
you know, in, in, in the, you know, going into harm's way. Um, I, I, I just have a lot, there, there's a lot of people that I serve with that I have that just a, just a profound re- amount of respect and admiration for that I served with knowing that there are things that they did that allowed some of our soldiers to be able to come home and experience the rest of their lives because of the the service that, that or the, the, the acts of heroism and courageousness. Now, some of these same people that I would be describing, if you were to ask them today, they would tell you that they were doing their job, just like I would tell you that I, that I'm doing my job. Um, so, you know, so, so they don't look at themselves that way as much as when you, when you're on, when you're outside of that and you're looking directly at them and you're like, man, you know, that, that's, you know, it's just awesome what, what, what they did. And, and they're just, they're just, you know, everyday, everyday people you, you would see walking down the street that you would not, unless, unless you knew who they were and what they did, you would never know. They would just strike you as maybe an average, you know, the average person uh, that you would see, you know, at Walmart or, you know, you know, at the, at the store, at the gas station, you know, they're just, just your average, average person. And they're, you know, extraordinarily special people in my opinion. And I'm grateful to be in a position to have, uh, you know, personal relationships with those people and call them my friends. Um, and I, I think, I think I can't, I, I won't, I won't speak for myself, but I, but I can certainly tell you that there are, you know, courage and teamwork are selfless service or just things that, that you, that are, when you're in the army and you're living that lifestyle, it's your norm. It's, it's what you would call normal because you don't think of it as anything special. And then after the fact, when you reflect on those times and the things that you went through and the hardships you were enduring with those people and the things that you saw other people do for others, it's just like really special to, 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 to be able to have that experience. Um, so yeah, I would say those things, uh, you know, you get those experiences in the military. And, and I would say a lot of those things I've applied to my civilian life that have served me well, you know, obviously teamwork, big deal on the civilian side, you know, the military, you know, teaches you to operate as a team. So, you know, being able to bring a skill set like that, you learn a lot of individual skill sets and the kind of umbrella of teamwork, you know, like communication skills, interpersonal skills, how to interact with people, how to motivate people, how to encourage people, you know, how to evaluate people's personalities and who best works where, you know, that, that, that those, those are soft skills that you kind of develop in the military in those kind of uh, scenarios that I described that serve you very well in the afterlife after the military, once you get out. Is there anything else you would like to add that we have not covered in this interview? Um, well, I, I didn't say in the beginning, but I just wanted to thank you guys for the interview. I really appreciate uh, you guys taking the time uh, uh, documenting these stories. I mean, I've listened to some of the other podcasts myself. I know I know some of the other people that that your school has interviewed, and I really appreciate this project that you guys are doing. Um, it, it, it may it, it may seem like like you know I don't know how you guys perceive it, but it may seem like a small project for you guys right now. But this is important work that you're doing. I think this is you're going to look back, and this is something you're going to be able to share with uh, your families and friends, um, children. If you have children in the future, they're going to they're going to hear these stories, and 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 it's going to be uh, it, it, it's it's going to impact people's lives and change people's perspectives. So it's a big deal what you guys are doing, and I thank you guys for 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 doing this. Um, but I, you guys covered a lot of bases there. Um, 
I, I, I would just say that, um, you know, keep up the good work. I don't want to, I think you guys heard enough about me, but I just wanted to kind of encourage you guys a little bit to keep doing what you're doing. Um, good luck uh, after you guys graduate. Uh, you guys got, got a lot of decisions that I described that I had to make when I was your age, when I was going through all the things that you guys are going through. Um, you still got to make some big decisions if you haven't already. So best of luck in your guys' future. And, uh, you know, I really appreciate you guys and, and uh, appreciate you guys. Keep up the good work. Well, we appreciate you for talking with us today and uh, we thank you for your service. Thank you. Well, that was a really great interview with Mr. McNutt. He has a very long career in the military, and I'm glad he was able to share his experiences like his deployments to South Korea, Afghanistan, and Iraq, along with his 9-11 experience, thoughts, and feelings. And without this, we wouldn't be able to remember the sacrifices that people like him made during those hard times. What do you think about the interview, Ed? One of the things that stood out to me was that Mr. McNutt made the most of his deployment in South Korea. He talked about how he would explore the places there, and he also would connect with the culture to get a better understanding of the people there. He also um, he also learned their language, so he was able to communicate with the people. Yeah, and I'm glad he told us about his military experiences like with boot camp and even during his time during deployment because when you go and watch a movie about the military you see the stereotypical uh, go to boot camp it's very difficult uh, you go to war and there's just no enjoyment but he told us stories of how he hung out with friends in the military he had his time off to go do what he wanted in his free time and yeah the boot camp was difficult but it wasn't difficult for the entire time that he was there it was only difficult for uh, a week or two so it was a it was a great thing that he told us this because we normally we don't see it as you have any fun but you have tons of fun in the military Anything else you'd like to add, Ed? Great point, Jago. I'm just really grateful for the opportunity to sit down and talk with Mr. Nutt. His story was really inspirational, and I'm glad I got to learn from him. I hope that through this podcast, other people will get to learn about the sacrifices that people like him make every day. And I hope that they listen to the amazing stories that they have to tell. Thanks for listening to the Operation Crest podcast. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe and share. Today's hosts were Evan Turner and myself, and our guest was Jason McNutt. The music was provided royalty-free by Coma Media. The questions were written by us, and the editing was done by our teachers. Until next time, see you.